So Psalm 2. I think this psalm will be particularly helpful for us, especially during, I think, this week in particular. Um, just thinking through like how... How we view the uh, how we view the world, and how we view God as the King of the world. So I'll read the Psalm, and then we'll just dive right in. Uh, psalm chapter two. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. Against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's read God's word. I think it's easy, sorry, I think it's difficult actually uh, for modern Christians to grasp and understand the concept of royalty, the concept of royalty. Uh, when the term royalty is used, we often think of the British, uh, the queen, God save the queen, her grandsons and their families. Uh, we think of royalty as it is portrayed in cinema, uh, Downton Abbey, the king's speech, um, the terms that often come to mind when we think of royalty today are more along the lines of uh, docile, maybe pretentious, uh, foreign. And so today, royalty holds no true meaning. The Bible, however, especially in the Old Testament, presents royalty in a completely different conception. And that is to say, royalty in the Bible wield greater power than our present modern forms of royalty. Uh, much of the Old Testament narrative centers around um, people of faith. Uh, they interact with royalty. They interact with kings and authorities. And, and I think the Bible purposely presents to us a tangible, identifiable weight of power uh, earthly kings have. But the Bible also holds them uh, to a very short leash in terms of actual absolute power. 
For example, Pharaoh was known as the most powerful man on the planet in the ancient Near East um, in the opening chapters of Exodus. But the Lord Yahweh washes him and his chariots away in the Red Sea. Uh, David, King David, was a man after God's own heart, but he had serious moral flaws that eventually led to his kingdom's downfall. Uh, we scroll later to Hezekiah, Josiah. Um, they're all deemed good kings, uh, but they were only able to um, somewhat restore the broken relationship between Israel and God at that time. And so we see that kings had a lot of power in the ancient Near East as the Bible in the Old Testament portrays them, but kings at the same time, in comparison to Yahweh, only had so much power. Yahweh had them on a short leash. And so we see this contrast between the shortcomings and the limited scope of human kings against the backdrop of absolute moral perfection, absolute sovereignty, uh, absolute perfect righteousness of Yahweh. He's known as the true king of kings. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's known as the Lord of hosts, which commands armies that are unseen. All powerful. So therefore, in the Old Testament, uh, although those in royalty possessed great power, uh, great authority, that obviously surpasses the amount of power royalty has today, uh, the Bible portrays that even the authority kings had in the Old Testament only goes so far. And so I, I want you to have this sense going into Psalm 2 because that's what Psalm 2 is trying to convey to us. Similarly, if you look back to Psalm 1, the first Psalm, Psalm 2 is another contrast. Psalm 1 contrasts the righteous with the wicked and presents a choice between the two. Either you side with the righteous as a righteous man or you side with the wicked and you're wicked and you're destroyed as well. Um, Psalm 2, however, also contrasts, but it contrasts the power and the authority of earthly kings and earthly rulers and earthly systems of power. And it contrasts it with absolute power of Yahweh and his anointed or his Messiah, or better defined, his chosen one, his chosen uh, ruler. And so we as readers, whether it was back then reading Psalm 2 as an Israelite, or today as modern Christians, uh, we're presented with the choice as well. Who do you ultimately pledge your allegiance to? Whose side do you take? Do you take the side of earthly kings and earthly systems of power, or you take the side of God and his chosen ruler. And so Psalm 2 makes this case that we as created beings of a creator God should subject ourselves to the authority and the rulership of Yahweh and his chosen king, his Messiah. Um, that is, a, it is a blessing. Uh, it's advantage advantageous similarly how it's a blessing in psalm 1 to be righteous it's a blessing here in psalm 2 to be under 
the authority to submit ourselves under the rulership and the authority of God. Because those who oppose God uh, not only undertake a completely um, foolish endeavor, but they ultimately face serious, grave consequences for their rebellion, which God calls sin. And so uh, I think this psalm breaks down into three distinct parts. And and we kind of see that because we see uh, the voices change. The voices change between the psalmist and Yahweh. Right? We're going to see the psalmist highlight defiance and derision in verses 1 through 5. So the psalmist is speaking here. And then the voice changes in verses 6 and 9, and we'll see God's declaration and decree. God's declaration and his decree in verses 6 and 9. And then it changes back once again to the psalmist giving a a kind of prompting a response um, to either devotion or destruction. Devotion or destruction in verses 10 through 12. All right, so let's look at the first five verses. The psalmist speaks and he highlights the defiance and the derision of earthly kings and earthly powers. He opens with a question. And I think the Psalms, you know, scattered throughout the Psalms, um, psalmists love to pose questions to introduce a thought. And oftentimes it's done so rhetorically. Meaning where the answer is either so obvious or the answer doesn't really matter because it's found within the question itself. And I think here the answer does not matter. Uh, The question introduces the nations and the people, the peoples in rage. They're scheming. They're preparing to coup against the authority of the time, namely the godly almighty, all-powerful authority of God. Uh, What we have in verses 1 and 2 is a great example of parallelism. And this is, parallelism is the the main literary device of uh, Hebrew poetry. And so, just a quick crash course on Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is not like modern-day English poetry. We don't have, there's not much of a rhyming scheme there's not much of a, like a rhythm. Um, there's not much meter. But thoughts and concepts are emphasized and re-emphasized through the use of parallelism. And so, look at this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. And so we have the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers of the earth, uh, the rulers take counsel together. You see that and there. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? So he says the same thing essentially twice, two times. He says, he asks a question and he asks the same question, pretty much in concept. And then he says, he makes an observation, earthly kings set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together. And so there's just this, this, Uh, This double jab, two jabs of rhetorical question and then another two jabs of observation that kind of implies or answers the question preceding it. And so Hebrew poetry uses parallelism 
to emphasize a concept here. And this concept for us is there is rebellion stirring on the earth. Pay attention to that. And so the natural question is, uh, who are the nations? Who are these peoples? Who are the kings of the earth? Uh, who are these rulers? And I mean, the nations represent pagan nations who are opposed to God. Uh, the peoples are groups of peoples who I do not identify themselves with God. Uh, the kings of the earth are stressed to be of the earth. Um, and the rulers are other rulers that are not ordained by God. Um, even back to the time of Abraham. Abraham participated in a war of, was it, nine different kings set out against each other. And so there's all these small city-state kings that are trying to vie for their local, to, um, trying to vie for growing their local spheres of influence. And so the action they take is similar to their person, their, their, their nature. Uh, they rage. Uh, they create commotion, they plot and they scheme. They align themselves together thinking an earthly alliance is going to prove to be stronger than uh, what God has already set. And so the psalmist is, what he's doing here is he painting uh, like a holistic picture of defiance. Defiance against Yahweh and his anointed. The psalmist moves to reveal their plan in verse Three, uh, so notice another use of parallelism. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so he's virtually saying, let us burst out, let's burst what's been holding us, what's had, what has been restricting us. Uh, let's cast away what we've bursted out from. And, and the use of parallelism paints this another holistic picture of rebellion. Um, he's, they're saying, let us break out from the shackles of Yahweh um, that Yahweh has bound us in. Or let us break free from the rulership of Yahweh and let us rule ourselves. And this has been the theme since uh, day one of sin, where Adam and Eve chose not to be under the authority of God and chose to be rulers for themselves. The same kind of opposition, the same kind of defiance that sin produces. This is... It's the human condition. Uh, it's the microcosm of every uh, human heart. What you can do is you can switch the terms nations, people, kings, rulers. You can switch all of that with just your name. Uh, why do Ricky rage? Why do Michael plot in vain? Albert has set himself and Shi Hong and his small group take counsel together. Right? You, can, you can replace that. It's interchangeable because we all share the same heart condition. Um, and so you and I, at the core of our being, we're characterized by defiance. Characterized by defiance towards God and his anointed. And th we have to understand what the term anointed means. It means Messiah, which means chosen one. Um, the picture is... The chosen next ruler of the kingdom would be anointed with oil uh, before the entire nation, set before the entire nation, in this case, the entire world. However, the, the picture the psalmist paints, this picture of defiance, is that 
the nations, us included, we reject God's chosen ruler. And we desire to break free and rule ourselves. This act is futile. Because what you see is Yahweh, he's reintroduced here. Um, and he's the one sitting. And he's the one ruling. And what does the psalmist says? He who sits in the heavens laughs. So Yahweh hasn't even gotten off his chair. He's not worried. He's not concerned about what's going on below. Um, he's seated and his position is secure. He doesn't have to get up. He doesn't have to worry. He doesn't have to fret. He's not taken by surprise. And so we have a progression here. It says, he who sits in the heavens, he laughs. He laughs. He's laughing at them. And then he holds them in derision. Meaning, the term derision means, not only does Yahweh disapprove, gives the thumbs up, uh, thumbs down, sorry, to what they're doing, uh, but he treats them with contempt. And he treats them with mockery. Meaning, whatever they do, whatever move they make, Yahweh's going to counter with double the force and come down harder than what they're trying to do. And so, so the psalm is saying is as if God is just amused. Um, God is just amused by the fact that these rulers, these earthly rebels, do not know what's coming for them in their rebellion, in their defiance. Then, in verse 5, in his derision, against defiance, the laughing stops. And I think this is a key moment for us to consider. Because God is, you got to be careful, because in some sense, God's bite is definitely worse than his bark. Uh, God can back up his word. God in verse 5, gets serious. Because what we have here is the scheming and the defiance of sinful man against perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, and justice. They're held together, and only one can prevail. And so God now shuts them up. Now, the plotting stops now. Because when God speaks... You listen. You must listen. You cannot not listen to use the double negative. And this is our second point. This is God's declaration and his decree. In verse 6 through 9. Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God has his own king. And he rules from Zion. Uh, Zion was that hill um, where David conquers the Jebusites and eventually becomes the, the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem set on a hill. And then that hill also has a hill, which Solomon, David's son, would build the temple. And that little hill is called Zion. And the scriptures use Zion um, both both literally and figuratively to denote the place 
in which God is most near to his people. Because at the temple, you commune with God. At the temple, you come close and you come worship God. We'll have other Psalms like Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 that asks, who can ascend God's holy hill? Who can get close to God? Who can bring acceptable worship of God? And that, so that's the sense when he says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so that hill is God's own hill. Uh, he, equate, he equates Zion uh, as the hill where his king will rule from. And that's his declaration. And so whatever God says, whatever God declares will come to pass. And so in verse 7, the voice changes but we find out it's still God because here the anointed speaks. Um, the son of Zion backs up God's previous declaration with the exact decree word for word issued by God. And so from eternity past, uh, the son speaks of, this is in verse seven, uh, he speaks of Yahweh's relationship with his son and that their relationship is both father and son. And oftentimes this verse is used um, to say that Jesus was a created being uh, because it says, today I've begotten you. Uh, but when you read carefully, that's not the thrust of the verse. Uh, the context is God's anointed being installed onto Zion, uh, the holy hill where the temple is. And the Messiah is the one who will rule from the place where God meets his people. And he'll act as that intermediary between God and uh, the people, his worshipers. And so this verse doesn't speak to like the son's origin story in, in terms of like an ontological sense. Uh, but it pre presents and carries a more present um, Israel time connotation of the active relationship between Yahweh the father and his son. Whereas God is installing the son onto Zion where he will rule. And so that's a very present reality at that time. But it's also a, a future prophecy in which there will come a time uh, when the son will actually physically rule from Zion. Um, just a small bit of context. I don't want to get lost in the, in the minutiae. Uh, psalm 2 is often a coronation psalm. So when a king is being coronated, this psalm would be read. And it's like to emulate the son being coronated and presented and installed onto Zion. Uh, it's like the Israel's equated those two things together. Uh, we don't have enough time to go through how um, concepts like Jesus saying, how does David say uh, that both his Lord is his son, stuff like that. But you get the sense where like kingship and sonship are closely tied together. And we see that eventually being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But we don't have time for that. Moving on to verses eight and nine, it follows this logic. Uh, in eternity past, Yahweh has given uh, authority and privilege for his son to inherit and rule the nations. And so the nations are his heritage, his inheritance. Um, the ends of the earth is the, the scope of his influence. Um, then he describes the activity of the sun. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
uh, the son will subjugate. Uh, he will break the rebellion of verses 1 through 3. Uh, this phrase, rod of iron, is unique to this psalm only. Uh, it gives us a picture of scepter, rulership, but iron also meaning strength. And so I think regardless of what the term exactly means, I think the imagery that the psalmist is trying to convey here is clear. The king, the anointed one, the Messiah, will exercise his right to rule. And so his scepter, um, the symbol of his rulership, shall exhibit strength, and he will break them, and he will dash them. It's another use of parallelism. And so I just want to pause here, and I want us to reflect. Uh, let these verses, this decree, these word-for-word -word recounting of what God the Father said to his Son, let that inform your understanding of, of kingship. Uh, let that inform and uh, your understanding of, of sonship, um, that God has a king that he's chosen for himself. And this king shall rule from Zion. It's from the place where the people will go and they will worship Yahweh. And this king will be, he'll be the connection and the representative between God and man. And this king um, not only will be able to represent people to God, but also God to people. And he'll be able to represent all creation uh, because all of creation is placed under the subjection, the rulership of, of, his, of him, of his feet. And so although we as modern believers have a difficult time understanding or even valuing, I think valuing is a better term, valuing kingship, uh, because we simply don't have kings anymore. Um, I think ingrained in us, into our DNA, as uh, new creations in Christ, we have this desire for a king to come and to rule and to reign. And so let these verses uh, shape your understanding and your appreciation uh, for God's plan for the nations, that he's going to unite all the nations under one king, under one rulership, and his rulership will be perfect. And so even when you reflect on, you know, like what's going on in the world right now, like the fact that God has a king for himself that is better than any other form of power, uh, form of authority, brings hope, brings hope to us. And this brings us to... The last section, the last voice, this is the, the call to action by the psalmist. He's calling us as readers to respond either in devotion or in destruction. And so a decision must be made here. Uh, verse 10 is the warning. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. This applies to you and me. Remember, this, this, is still, this is still talking and addressing us now because we in ourselves, we're rulers of our own kingdom. Uh, we like to sit on the throne of our hearts and think that we're in control. And so this warning is addressed to us. Um, it's a call to be wise. It's called to have discernment um, because the decision that we're called to make here is a life-altering one. Uh, your life is at stake. Verse 11, 
serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Um, this is the chief command. Uh, serve Yahweh with, with fear and rejoice with trembling. Um, serve, uh, devote oneself to Yahweh with godly fear. Uh, this fear is the recognition uh, that God is the almighty, infinite God, creators of the heavens and the earth. And this is also a recognition that we are finite creatures. And this fear that we're supposed to have is not a fear that leads to despair, uh, but fear that leads to joy. Because there's comfort in knowing that you're on the side of an almighty, all-powerful all king that cannot be beaten. Uh, there's no safer place under, uh, but underneath the, um, the sovereignty of the almighty, covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. The Apostle Paul borrows language with Psalm 2. And he uses, he borrows this language, this chief command of devoting ourselves to the anointed one, to, the, uh, to Yahweh with our own sanctification. Uh, he describes the Christian walk in Philippians 2.12 that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so if you're wondering, how does this apply to me? How do I apply this? Then think about your own walk. Think about your own sanctification. Think about your own mortifying, your own killing of sin. Uh, that is how to serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Um, you're killing our sin where putting off sin and putting on righteousness. We're carrying with us the, the hope, the aroma of Jesus Christ, the gospel to people who do not know that. That is the application of this chief command. Verse 12, I think, describes the outcome of when we obey verse 11. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Uh, either one can kiss the sun, meaning pledge your allegiance or do a homage to the sun, uh, which is another picture of our devotion and our affection uh, to God's chosen one, or we face destruction in the way, which is another callback, which is a callback to Psalm 1, uh, but the way of the wicked will perish. The anointed king the Messiah, uh, he's not an easygoing, tolerant guy. Uh, he's not, who's not bothered by your defiance. He's not like, oh, you know, like, it's okay. You know, like, it's cool. It's chill. Don't worry about it. Um, he's, he's wrathful and he's powerful. And he's coming with a rod of iron to, to rule and to subject and to reign and place everything underneath himself. And so Psalm 2 concludes with the same blessedness um, that we find in Psalm 1. And as Psalm 1 opens, blessed is the man, uh, Psalm, 12, uh, Psalm 2 closes it as blessed are all who take refuge in him. Um, so there's a connection there. Is that it's blessing when you seek refuge in the sun, when you align yourself with the sun. Um, psalm 2 is the, uh, the first of royal psalms. Uh, it's a theme 
that we'll find in the rest of the Psalter. And this theme of regality uh, will appear again and again. And the Psalms will sing about a king who rightfully represents both God and man. Uh, the Psalms will help us anticipate uh, his coming. Uh, even though he's not here with us physically during this time, he will come and he will be with us physically. Um, and the beautiful thing about the Psalms, and when you look at these regal, these royal Psalms, is that even though the king isn't here with us, the Psalms sing as if he's already come and he's already conquered and that victory has already been secured. And this is the kind of hope and this is the kind of um, anticipation we can learn from. Uh, this is how deep hope can be and that it borderlines like even arrogance, even boasting that I have a Messiah King and he's not only coming to rule and reign, but it's as if he is already. And so the Psalms will anticipate and then centuries later, that King will come and he will usher in his kingdom not so much with a rod of iron, but a cross of wood. Um, usher in his kingdom by dying on the cross. And he will rise from the dead. And he will proclaim victory. And the victory that he proclaims isn't a physical one. Rome still reigns at that time. But the victory he proclaims is that he set free captives prisoners, future kingdom citizens to be. He set believers, worshipers, true worshipers of God, free from the bondage of sin. And in so doing, he redeemed them to be kingdom citizens for himself. And eventually, he is coming back again to take back the entire created universe for himself. And so for us Christians, develop for yourself, develop for yourself a high king Christology, high king of heaven. Um, Jesus is more than a meek savior, uh, but he's not less. Uh, Jesus has come to die for sins and to woo you back to himself, yes. But he's not doing so as if he's like a meek and mild Savior knocking on the door of your heart, pleading, oh, can I come in? Is there room? He is coming to smash any sort of opposition or any sort of idol in your heart. And he's coming to take you for himself. That's how sinners get saved. That Jesus has come and he's changed everything. He's cleared out the room and he's made it for himself. And so this is the nature of when you place your faith in Christ. When you take refuge in him as the psalmist speaks. There is a complete allegiance switch going on here. You no longer are the rulers who take counsel with other rulers. And you set yourselves against Jesus. But Jesus has become the ruler himself. You serve not because he is so fearsome but you serve more since he is so fearsome. 
He is powerful and he is to be trusted. And that, that I think renders within us a response that because I have such a powerful king, such a powerful master, when I go out and I preach the gospel and I serve people in truth and love, I do so boldly because nothing can beat, nothing can overcome my king. Jesus is the king. He is your king. He is my king. He is the king of the universe. And he is the king of the atoms. From large to small, he owns it all and he rules it all. And so as a Christian, develop for yourself a high king Christology. You have a big view, a powerful Christ in your life. Boast in your allegiance to Christ. Boast in the fact that King Jesus has purchased you for himself. Don't be ashamed of your testimony. He has set you free from the captivity of your sin. And so boast in that. Boast in him. He is your king. And make the decision that Psalm 2 is asking us to make, demanding us to make, and place your allegiance in him. And be his servant. Be his slave. There's no... There's no greater blessing. Uh, There's no better refuge than being in the service of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your son. That your son is not just a savior, but in his salvation, he has become our king. And so let us, God, devote ourselves to him, devote our lives to him. Help us to serve him with fear and trembling as we walk with him. May this motivate our sanctification. Uh, May this enhance our joy, Lord. We ask boldly and confidently because you have given us your son who is our high priest who intercedes on our behalf and who presents you through him to us. Help us to love him better. Help us to love Christ more so that we can be more like him. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.